are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, you will hear a conversation that I had with a guy called B. And we talk about guys that totally don't have anorexia, but actually probably do have anorexia. And how a guy who totally doesn't have anorexia, but actually does, goes about recovery from anorexia. Um, We talk about, well, lots of things. All of you, I guess, mostly eating disorder behaviors, things like exercise, the um, personality changes, value changes that come in when a person develops an eating disorder. We also talk about that process that many of us take a while to get to. I know I did myself of actually realizing that you have a problem. First of all, realizing that you have a problem and then realizing that a problem probably actually might be an eating disorder and then getting to the stage of admitting it and looking for help, whatever shape that help may take and what's relevant to you. Those important stuff. So we talk about those. We talk about biology and science a heck of a lot because for some of us, understanding those things are very important for us understanding what our brains are doing and why our brains are doing it and how to recover. So the first thing that I asked B is to just tell us a little bit about himself. Here's B. Okay, sure. So I think I will go by the name of B in this case. That's, of course, not my real name, but I am still feeling the need to be a bit anonymous about this. And I had my life turned upside down around December of last year. I'm in my early 30s and I'd had problems with a restrictive eating disorder since I was a little kid, like maybe five or six. And uh, throughout my life, I had these problems. I kept them mostly to myself. There were some periods where my parents were concerned about uh, what was going on. But uh, in general, it was just a private thing that I dealt with. And uh, in December, I learned some things, uh, especially about the proposed evolutionary explanations for why restrictive eating disorders might persist into the modern world. And uh, that just sent me on a journey of discovering and reading lots of science and lots of recovery resources, and ultimately starting my own uh, recovery project, which uh, a few months in now is going great. And so uh, this year has been uh, quite a a remarkable one uh, in terms of things that are different. It's the first time in any sort of my memory that uh, some of these problems are going away and I'm finding things out about myself that uh, I did not know were part of the eating disorder, uh, but uh, apparently seem to be because they are changing. And can you give me an example of what something like that might be? Yeah, a good example would be uh, what you might think of as uh, just emotional range or a range of personality. So I've always been sort of a, a low-key person. I'm never super happy, nor am I really super sad about anything that uh, is bad. And this, someone pointed out to me, is potentially just a symptom of starvation. It's when resources are scarce your mind is very focused on the moment to moment 
do we have enough food? Do we have enough uh, things to survive on? And there's not a lot of time or capacity to feel anything beyond that. So you know, being able to legitimately laugh at things or uh, really enjoy something that's good is something that's slowly coming to me and uh, something I'm still learning to handle. Mm -hmm. And so, well, so, so tell me a little bit more about how, how your eating disorder started. Ah, yeah, well, this is something that uh, really held me back for a while because I did not know. There's no you know, discrete event in my childhood that I think triggered the eating disorder. I, I've had it as long as I can remember. Um, I remember as far back as being seven and doing compulsive exercise. There was a fad for jumping rope in my elementary school. Like all of the kids got jump ropes and uh, on the playground would spend the whole recess jumping rope. And I stayed with that uh, long after every other kid quit doing that. Uh, and it was sort of maniacal, sort of compulsive. Uh, I didn't quit it for a couple of years after everybody else did. And I, I moved towns in uh, late in elementary school. And that town did not have that fad. So I was the only kid jumping rope. And eventually I stopped it because everyone thought I was strange. Um, so that was age eight or nine. And then I, Later picked up uh, distance running. So I was on the cross country team in high school. And that really put uh, the eating disorder on um, a new track. So that was uh, something I used to uh, feed it quite thoroughly. So I, I eventually, at the, at the worst of it, organized my entire life about having time to run and scheduling yeah. time to run and making more time to. Yep. Some of us know. Distance. Some of us know a lot about that. Yeah, certainly. I uh, very much identified with that section in your book. It's um, it's just so difficult, though, isn't it? And I think that even even more so. I think that a lot of guys hide eating disorders behind athletics. A lot of a lot of girls too, um, but I think even more so, guys aren't diagnosed because you know you're just a runner. You're just a guy that's really into his running. And um, so I think that, that that can really be less than helpful, um, especially as you're probably, you're probably at some point yourself thinking, something's not quite right here. I know that something's not quite right. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely think that's right. And I'm not sure at what point I realized I had some sort of problem. It, I would imagine that it was in some high school health class and I learned about anorexia. Uh, although I don't remember this specifically. Uh, but once it became clear to me, A, I thought I should hide it because I was not the 14-year-old girl in ballet, and I thought that people would think negatively about me if I had that same problem. And I thought uh, it would make my parents think that they had done something wrong. So my parents were great. There was no trauma or abuse in my childhood. And a lot of things you read seem to focus on that as, oh, your parent has caused your eating disorder through being controlling or being not controlling enough or any of those things. I didn't have any of that. My parents were great. Um, there was one point in high school and cross country where 
I think a doctor told them that I was underweight. And like you say, they just assumed that I had taken it a little bit too far in the running. And uh, I knew what was going on and uh, sort of deflected and deflected until everybody got over it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so then doesn't that make it, well, I'm speaking from my own experience then because I did similar sort of things. And then when I did come around to, I have a problem. And then when I come right, came around to the stage of, I have a problem and I should probably admit it. Um, it was, I think that it was harder for me than it was for other people. It was harder for me to sort of having been denied having anything wrong for so long to then turn around and say, yeah, actually, you were all right. Um, I don't think it was particularly difficult for anybody else to accept it. <laughs> yeah, I I am uh, struggling with this a little bit. So I am uh, married and have a family now, and I'm open with uh, my spouse to some degree about this. But the depths of it, you know, how long and how bad it was, I'm still uh, working on being honest with myself about that as well as with other people. Mm. So uh Big steps in the last few months, but uh, more to go in that regard. Yeah, yeah, and I have to, from my from my um, perspective, it definitely just gets easy with time and gets way easier with recovery. Um, the The more I recovered, the less defensive I felt about any of it. I think um, to the point where I just, you know, don't feel defensive at all about any of it anymore. Um, but I definitely was very, very much so to start to start with and for years just denying you wouldn't even allow people to mention the words eating disorder around me um because I, I was just I, I found that for me that that felt like it could be the most shameful diagnosis at that time yeah I I think that matches with me quite a bit because there were plenty of opportunities for me to admit that I had some sort of problem and Maybe somebody asked me point blank in a few instances, and I just straight up lied in those cases. Um, I met, it is interesting, a lot of times if you speak to somebody who also has had experience with this, mm -hmm. they know you in a way that you do not expect. Mm -hmm. So I met, I met a, a girl when I was in college who had a history of eating disorders, and without even talking to me, I think it was the first time I met her, she said something to me about how I uh, only eat at a certain time and just jumped into, oh, I did that myself. And I also chewed ice chips instead of uh, having meals and just started on this thing. And I, I was terrified that she was able to pick up on all of that without any context about me just from those few things yeah were... and um it's all of those little things i think that really uh, led me into just seeing eating disorders from such a biological perspective because we all do things that are so damn similar it's creepy a lot of the time and it's not even just the obvious behaviors that the obviously eating disorder behaviors that we all do that are similar it's a lot of the really subtle things that i know myself i just used to think i must be the only person in the world that does this weird little thing and then when I started writing about them, I get all these emails from all these hundreds of other people that are like, I do the exact same thing. It's, and it's still just so biz bizarre and funny. And um, I find, you know, just 
illustrating the biology to me when when we all have these very similar thought patterns, behavioral patterns, reactions and things like that. Yeah, this was actually really eye opening for me is how many of my things that I thought were just quirks are super common among people with eating disorders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I especially had the uh, OCD component mm -hmm. uh, to some degree. So I would be weird about walking extra loops around uh, places where I would go or inefficiently um, doing tasks in order to maximize maximize yeah. movement it's the little and... it's the little things like parking in a parking lot further away than you really need to just so you can walk that little bit further to get to the store that you want to go to i think it's those right. little similarities that just blow my mind <laughs> yeah uh, another thing i would do would be anchor on well i did this on monday so i have to do at least that much on tuesday and yep. more and more the following week and mm -hmm. you know this to me, it just was a strange little thing that I would do. It wasn't terribly distressing or anything um, that anybody else might do. But then I learn about uh, eating disorders, and it turns out lots and lots of people do this. Yep, and it's some of it. You could say, well, that's 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 obvious that people with eating disorders would do that, and those are generally the more the larger behaviors that people recognize. But some of the really small, subtle ones. It's just that has to be some biological component. It's it's not that just this huge coincidence that so many of us seem to have these these same little habits and these same little thought patterns. And um, but it's also, as you said, it, it's actually really helpful in recovery when because it takes one to know one a lot of the time. I think when somebody can just look at something you're doing and they know they know that you have an eating disorder because they've had one as well. And it's some of the things I think are even difficult to put into words because they're so subtle. And it's the little things like that, that I think it can be helpful. Peer support can be helpful to help you understand that actually is to do with this eating disorder neural network. And it's probably something that I have to try and change. Yeah. And I'll agree with you quite a bit on peer support. The, thing that helped me very, very much was corresponding with somebody who is a little bit ahead of me in recovery and working on these same things herself and just understanding what lies ahead of me and pointing me at resources. Uh, she, she pointed me to you and some other books. Uh, that's been really invaluable. So, well, what do you think? You, you said that you're, you're, um, you said that you're in a really good place in recovery. So what do you, a peer support has helped you get there? What else? I mean, and actually what, what helped you decide, you know what, I have an eating disorder and I need to recover from it. Yeah. Well, so it goes back to December. I randomly stumbled across something about oh, isn't this interesting? There may be some evolutionary basis for anorexia. And that, in that context, it wasn't, it's a, a blog I read normally. It's not all about eating disorders. It just came up because it's interesting. It presented this to me in a way that was, I, I didn't have defenses up about it. So I was just reading a blog. I thought, oh, this really is interesting. There were people who commented on the blog who said there's more things you can read about this. And 
that just opened up to me a uh, a space to learn about this in a way I would have been closed off to before. So I do lots of research about everything, like for any running shoe I would buy, I would spend hours and hours of doing research. But you know, over decades of having an eating disorder, I maybe search for three things about, mm-hmm. oh, is there maybe something I could do to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. And invariably, I would come up against on something about body image, which was not my problem, or childhood trauma, which was not my problem, mm-hmm. and, and just dismiss it entirely. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when it was presented to me as, uh, here's something interesting, here's something about science, you're interested in science, uh, that gave me just a little bit of space to learn something about it. Yep, I, I hear that. I hear that a lot, actually, because I think it's it's underestimated how many people with restrictive eating disorders actually don't have the very typical path into them the very you know like it's assumed that we all have body image problems or it's assumed that you had trauma or any of those more psychological paths into an eating disorder and plenty of people do have those but I think it's underestimated how people how many people don't and actually feel that they're a bit that that's the reason that they don't have an eating disorder because they don't have all any of those methods or paths into it and so I, I think that a lot of people who stumble across by bio- more biological approaches in the same way you did actually, I guess, don't feel pissed off for the first time when they start to read about it. Because I know that when whenever anybody would assume that I had a background of trauma, it would actually piss me off. I would just be like, I don't want to hear this. I'm not interested. I found I and the same with uh, some of the body image stuff as well just assuming that i had hated my body from a very young age which really wasn't true and it just it would it would have pissed me off i think just because people were making assumptions about me not because of the actual context but just because i don't like people making assumptions about um when they don't know anything um and so i think that it's important not it's important to understand that many people do who have an eating disorder one of the contributing factors is trauma and many people do have a contributing factor of body image as well and um, but it's also important to understand that if we only focus on contributing factors without actually focusing on the biology which we all have in common that's something that we all have in common you can't really go wrong without you know focusing on the genetics and the biology you just kind of piss a lot of people off and, and stop them seeking treatment yeah, I, I think that is all right. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways to come to the eating disorder, and maybe it's trauma, maybe it is a body image issue, maybe it's societal pressure. But once you're there, it doesn't mean you have to go back out that same way. So just because you started with a body image issue or a diet that went wrong doesn't mean you have to fix that issue to uh, recover from your eating disorder. You have to fix the starvation and do the neural, neural rewiring, mm-hmm. hard to say, mm-hmm. uh, in order to do it. So I spent a lot of time over the years racking my brain, trying to think, was there something my parents screwed up that did this to me? And I really regret that now because my parents were great. They didn't do anything wrong. I shouldn't have spent so much time trying to pin something on them uh, just because these ill-informed resources think that that's the the way you get there yeah and um i I mean i'm not not there are certainly some people who do not have ideal childhoods but um no no yeah absolutely that could be one path for somebody to get there but Mm -hmm. uh it's 
certainly not the only one. Yeah, and um, but but I used to I I I was not whenever anybody suggested that there was anything that my parents might have done anything wrong that just angered me because it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and um, but I've also I have known plenty of people that that's been suggested to them rather strongly and the, the same thing they've sort of thought about it and try to pinpoint something and I think that's not necessarily because they want to drop their parents in it it's just because when somebody is suggesting maybe this is the reason that all of this is going on and you're desperate to kind of work out what is going wrong and try and find out what's wrong then it's tempting isn't it to think well okay well maybe and if if this professional here is this uh, adamant that it's something to do with my childhood then maybe there was something maybe I should look for something because people are telling me that in order to recover I have to find this something wherever it is uh, uh, I'll say also two things that really struck me once I did have I was open to reading these things uh, one was this concept of mental hunger mm-hmm. so one thing the way my eating disorder manifested is I didn't feel physical hunger the way most people do, uh, but I was just consumed by the running calorie count and the uh, how much have I run today, how much did I run yesterday, how much have I run this week, mm-hmm. all of these totals and tallies and things like that just occupied my thoughts all of the time, and life was just distracting myself from that. Uh, but I, I didn't have the typical hunger sensation uh, mm-hmm. until quite recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. A lot of people talk about anorexics are starving themselves, but I didn't feel I was starving myself because I didn't feel classically hungry. So that was one thing that helped me uh, think about this in a new way. And another one was somebody pointed out how much lying there is in anorexia. Mm -hmm. So it is, it was to me just a social game. Like somebody offers you some food you're just supposed to say no because they didn't really want you to accept it. To me, that was coded as just this little dance we do. Nobody's going to really think I'm lying. I'm just supposed to say no Mm. at your big show of hospitality. Mm. But that belief upon examination just sort of fell apart. It was uh, every time I tell somebody something that's not true, that's just normal lying. Mm. And I thought of myself as an honest person. Mm -hmm. Uh, But once I look through every day when I'm making excuses why, oh, I already ate. That's not true. Oh, I'm not hungry. That's sort of true. Uh, Oh, no, I, you know, I'll catch up later. No, I won't. Yeah. Uh, All of those things are. (laughs) But I I mean, those are kind of, yeah, those are, those are lies that you can, are very justifiable, I think, um, because some in the same way that somebody might ask you, how are you? And you say, I'm fine. Somebody asks you, you you but I used to tell straight out lies if my my mother used to ask me have you been running today and I'd say no and so that was a straight out lie so I used to and I wouldn't it wouldn't even I wouldn't even blink at saying that um and it didn't even feel like a lie it's just strange of course I knew that I had been running that day but it it just it felt like something it felt like it was completely justified for me to tell that lie in a way that right now I was just like, wow, I was such a little liar. <laughs> um, so it, I, I find that very interesting. And I think that that comes down to when your brain has this belief that you need to do something in order to survive, it just makes whatever you need to do in order to do that thing. And if that involves lying a little bit or a lot, it just makes it seem justified. 
Yeah, I, I think it was the most natural thing in the world. It, it didn't even register to me as an untruth. It was just the automatic response. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I think it's really important to talk about these things as well, because um, many people with restrictive eating disorders, especially if you have one for you know, a long time, are pretty down on themselves. And that can be just another thing that their brain uses against them. Uh, you know, I'm a liar. I don't deserve to recover this, that and the other. And it's so I think it's OK to say, you know, what? it's pretty actually normal for people with eating disorders to lie about some things. Not everybody does it, but many of us do. And that's not doesn't mean anything about you as a person. It just means you have an eating disorder. Right. Well, and for me, just that realization that I'm constantly lying did wake me up enough that I went deeper into reading about well, what is possible in recovery. And so it was good for me to get hit upside the head with that, at least because it, it was a, enough of a shock that uh, it got me out of my uh, long-term stasis. Mm -hmm. And so for you, you saying you said that, that you know, science really helped. And so I, I imagine then that helped you understand that the path out was nutritional rehabilitation, regardless of whether you felt hungry or not. Or, or anything else that you actually had to start forcing yourself to eat a lot more food and rest. That, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I think one of the most helpful scientific resources that I came across is uh, the notion of activity-based anorexia in laboratory animals. So uh, you've had uh, Shan Giesinger on your podcast, and she's discussed this uh, a couple of times. But there's a, a paper, uh, uh, I have to look up the citation, uh, but the it's an instruction manual for how to induce anorexia in mice. And it tells you step by step, get this kind of cage, get this kind of wheel, put them on this speeding schedule and you know, wait a little bit. And some subset of them will run obsessively on the wheel and ignore their food. It's It's not a question you don't have to make the mice feel bad about their body image or anything like that <laughs> it just happens and, um, yeah and and, th and that this actually i mean I, I know exactly the paper that you're talking about and i've written about it a number of times and this is one of the things that that really made me quite mad at the traditional treatment models because it's like hello <laughs> this is complete biology this is this is we're just using a different species and we can create anorexia without any psychological intervention in mice. And yeah, it, that, this, that is was not really being, this is not being talked about in eating disorder treatment. It's not even used. And that really made me cross. Yeah. And also the recovery for those mice is lock the wheel so they can't run on it and make sure they have plenty of access to food and make sure they eat it. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think I'm any better than the mouse. So that's what so, I had to start doing. Yeah. As well. So you lock the wheel, you force yourself not to go running, um, and you force yourself to eat more food, but tell me how hard or easy was that? Uh, well, it was, it was somewhat difficult. So I had a couple of weeks of, um, extreme insecurity. So I, I was very secure in how I was managing my eating disorder. I was uh, quite high functional and I thought I was very smart. Like, I, okay, I know if I stick to this very regimented schedule, I can have a life and uh, all of that. I'm not uh, 
formally underweight in a way that people mm-hmm. are going to worry mm-hmm. anymore. I, I thought I was, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought I was uh, getting an A plus in anorexia. Um, so I went from being very confident about that to just uh, totally incompetent about everything for a few weeks. And I tentatively started just uh, eating meals at mealtime. So that to me seemed like something I could possibly do. I still had to run obsessively, uh, but I, I was trying this for a couple of weeks. And then I, the contradictions kept mounting up. You know, I, I've learned these things. I've read the science. I'm talking to somebody who's been through some of this before. You know, the gulf between what I know and what I'm doing is too high. So to me, it seemed like uh, more more psychically painful to continue with the restriction and the overexercise uh, and having these contradictions than mm-hmm. it would be to just tempt recovery. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I wish I could say, you know, I, I need to get better. I'm going to do this thing, but I could really only commit to a couple of weeks. So uh, I did that and I, I told my spouse, I'm going to cut back on the exercise. I, I couldn't go cold turkey at first. Um, ultimately, I did. But I, I had to admit I had a problem. I had to say I'm going to cut back on the obsessive running. I had to get on uh, a more normal uh, meal schedule. And I tried that. I, I saw that the world didn't end. And uh, I went a couple of weeks without running at all, uh, which was not uh, the most pleasant experience of my life, but it was also not the worst experience of my life. And I kept renewing that commitment. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's how it started. Yeah. And really, I think that for, for most of us, recovery is, is a process of trial and error. And you, uh, and you know, you, you keep trying things and you make changes and then you just realize, well, that's actually better, but it's not enough and it's not going to be enough to get me fully recovered. And that's what most people's paths look like, I think, is back a little bit backwards, a little bit forwards, a little bit backwards, a little bit forwards. And then one day you just go, sod it. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing that helped in doing this is I kept corresponding with my friend who's uh, also working on recovery and kept reading science. So I've, uh, this is not my field, biology. Uh, my field is computers, but uh, I've read more medical journals and psychology journals and instructions on how to run a lab with anorexic mice in the past few months than anything else. So this has been my reading and writing uh yeah, you, you've written a blog as well, haven't you? Yeah, so this is something that helps. So one of the things I did to sort of help myself and sort of consolidate uh, what I was learning was write a, a guide that wasn't focused on body image issues, uh, which got some uh, attention on uh, the Tumblr blog space, which I wasn't part of. But then uh, after that happened, I started writing uh, a blog myself with some of these things. Uh, a lot of the uh, science I was reading, I could write on that. Uh, some of my experiences of things I was going through at the moment, uh, I could write on that. And 
just engaging with people who are curious about recovery or who have you know, found resources online that aren't helpful, but then something about biology helps them or something that's not so focused on body image helps them. That has been really, really gratifying. So I, I'm sure you get this quite a bit, but when somebody tells you, you know, I've been in treatment this many times and that hasn't been helpful, but learning about the mice, that's been very helpful. Uh, that is just something that really keeps me committed to uh, this path. And uh, you know, if I have some doubts, I can look back on that and think, okay, well, it, it, it helped that person and it is uh, good advice. I should keep following it myself. Mm -hmm. I think when you first emailed me, you um, you showed me that you'd written something uh, called the No Nonsense Guide. But um, I actually liked what you said your original draft was called which was the no-nonsense guide for guys who totally don't have anorexia but think they might have some sort of problem. <laughs> yes, that's right. And uh, that was uh, aimed at me. I was trying to think of if I, at age 19 or something, had come across that, I might have read it. And I might have spared myself in another decade of uh, restrictive eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I <laughs> made it a, a little more broad after that uh, but yeah that's that is at no nonsense guide.net if anyone wants to read it. i'll put a link to that in the show notes yeah sure um well so is there anything else that you think that um especially if there's any guys listening that totally don't have an eating disorder <laughs> but they think they might have some sort of problem is there anything that really stands out to you and if you were talking to yourself several years ago what would be the one and the single most important thing that you think if you just had a couple of sentences to say to somebody? Oh, uh, you know, a couple of sentences is a little bit tough, but yeah. uh, I would really emphasize that the problems of eating disorders are starvation related primarily, and that fixing starvation is the key to fixing a lot of the fear, a lot of the anxiety, a lot of the obsession with food or scarcity or all of that constellation of behaviors. And that's the starting point. It is not you have to fix your psychology and then you will fix your uh, eating disorder once you're convinced that your psychology is OK. It's the other way around. You have to stop starving and that will help you fix your psychology. Uh, I think a lot of traditional treatment gets that backwards. They want you to fix your body image or they want you to fix your societal beliefs about uh, what's good and what's not about thinness. Uh, I, I think that's unfortunately backwards. Such a great guy. I really enjoy talking to people like that. I enjoy talking to no-nonsense people, I have to admit. And B, yeah, I think just the type of person that once he figured out, oh, I have an eating disorder, then worked out a no-nonsense way to getting his head around it, sorting it out, and was even generous enough to then go ahead and share it. So I will link to B's blog in the show notes. It's not just for guys. I think it's probably helpful for anybody who has realize that they have an eating disorder and just wants to recover. 
um, and probably helpful for anybody listening who's a parent or a carer as well. I think that anything that gives parents, carers, treatment providers a little bit more insight into how people recover, things that they use to recover, and the biology behind it is really important. If you have a recovery story that you would like to share with me, I'd like to talk to you. You can email me at info at Thank you for listening. Thank you to B for talking to me. Cheers, and until next time, cheerio.